Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, December 17th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, yet again asking you to consider commentary in your end of year giving. Our 501c3 Commentary Inc. publishes Commentary Magazine, releases the daily website, and produces this daily podcast. And we are grateful to our subscribers and to our advertisers for providing us with a great deal of funds to run what we run, uh, but we have a deficit and we have to close it every year and pay our bills every year. And we do that through the generosity of our donors. Please join their ranks uh, at www.commentary.org donate. We will all be very, very grateful. We're grateful for your uh, listenership now we're grateful for your readership always uh and we will be very much in your debt if you should decide to uh focus on us as part of your uh charitable generosity as the year comes to a close with me as always executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john so everybody I know is going absolutely bananas over the uh, Omicron variant. And uh, we have headlines, a very weird Daily Mail headline that says there are going to be a million and a half cases a week by Jan- a CDC report says a million and a half cases a week by January and a death toll of 2,500 people a day in the United States as this goes forward. Uh, says the CDC, and then as I read through the story, I saw actually no um, citation of a CDC report or anything. Um, classic British journalism, high high, high drama, low sourcing. Um, I believe it is still the case that we have one confirmed death on the planet Earth from the Omicron variant. I mean, I, I, I believe now since we only had one that if we had a second, there would be a huge drudge headline saying second Omicron death. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, my, uh, the high school, my, my kid who is in elementary school, the high school attached was elementary school has gone remote. Uh, Princeton closed down early. Stanford closed down early. Cornell closed down early. Um, and, uh, and we're now, you know, uh, last night on Broadway, Moulin Rouge, the biggest town on Broadway, literally the audience was seated and was sent home like was dismissed from the theater and sent home because of some Omicron event. Um, Which really so, has uh, the feel of 2020. Like the, mo- the, the moment where 2020 without the consequences. When you knew that, that this thing was real was when they all of a sudden a basketball, a, a game, an NBA game that was set to take place in mere minutes, all of a sudden the players were rushed out and then the audience was removed. And it was one of those, pre-apocalyptic moments <laughs> and yeah certain municipalities are lurching towards the mitigation protocols that we appealed to in 2020 without any pharmaceutical intervention into this thing so it made sense um but they're restoring the 2020 status quo but now, this is all but this is all this is all private action broadway theaters uh well, the NBA pri- thing private, private universities action. Right, but it followed, fair enough. But I'm just saying that what we're seeing here is a reaction from people, I guess, who are afraid of litigation 
or, you know, whatever it is that they're afraid of. And um, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this, but the facts on the ground do not support the panic that is breaking out. Permit me a few minutes because I have some data on those facts. It's been two weeks. It's been two weeks. We actually can talk about this with some real detail because the headlines on every story are nightmarish. I, you know, of Osterholm, Dr. Osterholm is sort of a Dr. Doom. A blizzard of virus is going to descend on us in the next couple of days. And the fear is that even if Omicron is less severe, which it does appear to be, that it's infectious enough that it will capture a significant portion of the population. And even those, even if everybody gets a mild case, almost everybody gets a mild case, the few who don't will constitute a surge large enough to overwhelm hospital capacity. And of course, we have a vac- unvaccinated population that is large enough to still represent the threat. Those aren't invalid concerns, although they're hypothetical. The data now suggests that we know precisely how the severity of this disease, and that's caused for a lot of um, hope, but the hope appears in the seventh or eighth paragraph of all these stories. Um, this one from the Los Angeles Daily News, quote, of the more than 6.15 million vaccinated people in the country, in the county, I'm sorry, Los Angeles County, 84,931 have tested positive. That's about 1.38% of the vaccinated population. A total of 2,798 vaccinated people have been hospitalized for a rate of 0.046%, and 537 people have died for a rate of 0.009%. Moving on, there's a story in, uh, in the Minnesota Post that was actually pretty good that dug into the, the Minnesota Department of Health stats on who's getting this among the vaccinated. And 90% of them, according to this health department, uh, of the vaccinated breakthrough house hospitalizations and deaths had a medical condition, an underlying medical condition, 90%. In Tennessee, the latest research report from uh, released on Friday shows that a total of 793 vaccinated Tennesseans have died from COVID and 1,882 have been hospitalized a total of 77,432 breakthrough cases had occurred, meaning 1.07% of those cases ended in death. And we, uh, oh, and also this from a, uh, a play from Orlando, which has been studying the wastewater, found that in Orlando, the wastewater suggests that Omicron is now the dominant variant. But hospitalizations have not recorded anybody with the Omicron variant in their test cases, which dovetails with Denmark, where 99% of Omicron patients had not been hospitalized, according to to an institute there. And finally, Scott Gottlieb, former FDA chair, commissioner, um, who uh, has been studying this, who's been reading the data out of South Africa where we discovered this variant, um, determined that because the cases are now sliding, rapidly sliding and declining, even though we just discovered this thing, suggests to him that we only caught the tail end of it, that we discovered it when it was almost over, which means that almost all the cases that constituted this wave were subclinical. In other words, they didn't get hospitalized. They didn't even go to the doctor. They didn't get tested. They didn't recognize that they had this. It was so below the radar that we didn't even know it was there because of its mild, mildness and that lack of severity. All this is really good news. You'll be hard pressed to find it. It took me forever to find this sort of details. I had to go hunting them out and they're buried under mountains of speculative terror 
from the public health apparatus and the politicians who respond to them. And in the press. And they're, they're also buried under um, headlines that are completely counter, run completely counter to the data. So uh, headline after headline says, here's what we know about Omicron. It spreads rapidly. We don't know much about the severity yet. This is simply not true, as 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 Noah just recounted. Uh, sadly, Boris Johnson, you know, summed it up a few days ago when he said, uh, "Let's put to one side the idea that this this variant isn't severe. You can't put it to one side. There are there are sort of two uh, crucial components when considering the variants. Maybe three. Uh, one is how rapidly it spreads. The other is how severe it is." The third being uh, whether or not it evades um, uh, 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 inoculations. Um, you can't simply take one huge piece out of this puzzle, or you can, and they have. And, and that, is, that, is the, that is the way they're going forward with this. I, I have this idea that you know, this is just, just a piece of, as Noah, you said, this is all good news or mostly good news. This is a piece of a longstanding pattern at, at, at this point longstanding in the country um, where good news is just simply impermissible. Not only, not only impermissible, but sort of has been conceptually kind of foreclosed um, because to recognize good news is sort of indulgent and shows that you're not acknowledging the suffering that's going on somewhere despite the good news, right? So uh, mild variant, as, as, we're seeing, as we're seeing this as, as, as being, that's not good news, can't be good news. Uh, the vaccine development itself, remember, that wasn't good news, not particularly, A, because we couldn't trust it because it happened under Trump, B, um, because uh, America's going to hoard it all and be evil about it. That's not good news. A string of just legal verdicts um, have, have, have fallen down in the past year uh, from Derek Chauvin being convicted. Well, that's not good news because there's too much work still, still to do uh, in the Aubrey trial. Uh, Jesse Smollett, even those who recognize that it was the the correct decision, it's not good because uh, a white defendant would would have would have uh, would have been convicted. Uh, space exploration that was bad because because it didn't do anything about uh, uh, the starving or the or the global poor. Um, inclusive art projects, movies, uh, you know, in the Heights was bad because it because it missed out on uh, you know. Uh, what one one uh, ethnic group uh, who was up there and on and on and on. There is simply no room for good news anymore in the bandwidth. And this is this is a, a trait that is more pronounced on the left than the right. We can be honest about that, right? Because oh, I don't a, know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think fair, it is. I, everything that Abe just mentioned to be fair, is, is politically. Politically, exactly, which is my point, that it's become a tribal signifier to be no, pessimistic. Right. To, to no, be part but, of Joe Biden's coalition is to be dour about yes. the state of the country and the future. You don't have to be clairvoyant to know what's going to happen politically to a movement that inculcates depression in its adherence. Well, let me just put it this way, that if you have the you have uh, also in the political, uh, you know, no good news sense. How about the ultimate no good news? The ultimate no good news for the for liberals in the left is that um uh, Trump arose, they viewed him as a unique threat to America and our future, and he was defeated in one term and, and ousted from office by a pretty significant percentage, if we know, uh, for a sitting president, 4% out, out, out on his ear. 
And uh, what have they done for the last year but say our democracy is even more under threat? It's even more under threat than it was before when he was actually in the presidency because there's a vote in some county in South Dakota to control the electoral officials or they won't pass voting rights reform or they're going to close up some of the emergency measures that were made to to make it possible so that you could drive by uh you know in your car and drop a ballot in the ballot box with no ballot security but that was necessary because people weren't supposed to be socially congregating but that should be permanent now because it should be and if it's not then this is a threat to our democracy like taking the win not only taking the win in the right way by the way that would also include taking the win in the right way by calculating the proper balance of forces uh because, of course, then they got this unexpected win, which is they got the Senate in their hands because of the madness in, in Georgia. Democrats got the Senate. And what did they do? They were like, we better get everything that we want now. We got to get right now, right now, right now, because because disaster is coming. You know, the 2022 midterms are going to go against us. That's the way it works. And they're closing all the electoral rules and the Supreme Court is, you know, going to going to going to outlaw abortion and all that. So they can't even enjoy the fact that their main goal from 2017 to 2021, which was the removal of Trump from office in the best way, not the most controversial way, the best way, which is not through impeachment and not through removal, but by a rejection by the national plebiscite that elects the president of the United States, not just national, but 50 state, right? It was a 80% electoral vote majority got, got Biden elected. They can't enjoy it. They will not allow themselves to enjoy it because Trump is still exists. And if he didn't, and if we got back to normal with 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 the absence of the Trumpian threat, the absence of the of the viral threat, that still wouldn't be good news because normal was bad too. normal yeah. was evil. This I, I, I'm I'm very keen on this theory of yours, Abe, because there are two little weird, seemingly um, not connected data points that now I think might be connected. I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist saying things like this. But the first was something I sent you guys yesterday, which is the Washington Post has just announced a new position. And it was like deja vu all over again because they used to do this in the 90s. Someone to cover the conservative right because it needs its own special beat always, of course, showing their hand when they when they advertise for these positions as if they're not actually covering them as part of the broad political culture, which they should be. It's like they are a special case. We're going to have someone who's just laser focused on the conservative right, which we all know will not end well if they're hired by the post to cover the right. But the other data point which speaks to your your argument, Abe, is that perhaps this is the the fruition of years and years of a of a kind of progressive left narrative that's been taught in our schools, that's been embraced in popular culture about just how terrible the country is, this sort of overly negative view. And I was looking at a, a, at a data point from a recent Pew poll, and the question that was asked was, uh, which of these statements best describes your opinion about the United States? The first statement was the U.S. stands above all other countries in the world. The second is the U.S. is one of the greatest countries along with others. And the last statement was other countries are better than the U.S. So it's kind of a kind of a stand in for patriotic feelings about one's country. And most Americans, not surprisingly, said that America is one of the greatest countries in the world, along with others. But one group was exceptional in its in its uh, rejection of that. Uh, the group that said other countries are better than the U.S. Democrats ages 18 to 29. 
And that to me is the, is exactly, uh, that's a positive. If you're a progressive who wants, who wants young people to think of their country as a terrible place that needs absolutely radical reform. It's worrisome to us as conservatives, but I, I do think there's something to this. A lot of these threads are coming uh, unraveled now um, for the left when they face reality. But there is unfortunately a long-standing history of saying the country's bad, everything's terrible, and and you know it, it's it's infected our education system. Obviously, if this poll is correct, look, we're we're like every four days a week we say this. I mean, we're back to the 1970s in this regard, that the, in the 1970s, we had um, uh, 60s and 70s, but really coming to fruition in the 70s, we had a dominant political culture that argued that we had done something evil in Vietnam, that we were polluting the world into a position of, you know, un unlivability, uh, and that uh, and that the um, civil rights measures that have been taken to liberalize and create equality of opportunity uh, in the 1960s were wildly insufficient unto the day. People had to be people's children had to be forced to attend schools in far distant neighborhoods to use them as, you know, chess piece guinea pig models of forcible uh, integration uh, in order to create a society that looked the way people said that it was supposed to look. And this was all done in a sort of phalanx move uh, by uh, liberal politicians, uh, by a compliant press, by uh, the cultural high watermarks of, 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 of the United States. And in so doing, created a wild backlash against itself. Oh, also, you know, criminals are are victims and the, the victims of crime. Crime needs to be understood as a sociological or emotional expression of um, of, of either poverty or frustration. And uh, and this was very real. It had very real consequences. Some of them, I guess, were positive in the sense that we, you know, liberalized or we, 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 we put in place better environmental controls because of concerns about pollution and various other things, but in the, in, in, in large measure, uh, this um, assault on, uh, on, the, on the very idea, both of American exceptionalism and of American goodness, um, you know, created this voice that said no in thunder in response and drove the Democratic Party into the will, not the entire party, because obviously it had control of Congress and stuff like that, but drove the Democratic Party into the relative wilderness for almost two decades. Had it not been, and we don't even know if you want to run a counterfactual, had there not been Watergate, had there not been a Nixon resignation, who knows how long that could have been? That could have been 1968 to 1994 instead of 1980 to 1992 or whatever. You know, it's like, um, and we we're, we're living on, and we now have again we have a we have a buildup in the common culture. Uh, everything about America sucks. We developed this fantastic vaccine and it's nothing but agony. It's nothing but neurotic agony because it's great. It's a fantastic thing, but those people aren't getting it. They're not getting it. And I need my third and where's my third booster. And why, why isn't it more equitably distributed? And I don't know. I mean, maybe they're trying to, maybe why, why is Pfizer? Then you get the other, then you have to, maybe this is some kind of conspiracy to make Pfizer rich or, yeah, no matter how you slice it, the 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 incentives for going negative about everything are so high. And we have to, 
you have to confess like that's the news right the news is a the news is conflict and uh, uh everyone is clickbaitish and uh, you don't get good hits from writing that everything is going well with the vaccine distribution and 85% of americans now have a vaccination what you get clicks from is there are three people in Pasquaxi, South Dakota, who are anti-vaxxers, go get them. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, there are flat earthers also. There are flat earthers and we don't have like Twitter mobs going after flat earthers. Um, by now, a lot of the anti-vax stuff is the, is the equivalent of flat earthers. We're, as I said, we're, we're, you know, we're getting to nine tenths of Americans having, having submitted to the vaccination regime. I believe if you actually asked people in that weird way that people say, you know, said in the 80s, if you asked them what size Israel was because of the nature of how much the Israel-Palestine conflict was talked about in the press, and they said, you know, how big it is, they draw it on a map, they thought Israel was the size of Russia. Because why would you take the, why would this tiny country the size of Rhode Island <laughs> be the subject of the war and it had 100 million people those were the was at a population of 100 million was the size of russia well you know if the world of coverage of the of vaccine resistance has the effect of amplifying of ample of distorting vaccine resistance to the extent that people think there is much more of it than there is in fact way more of it and uh yeah uh, to your point about how this is, you know, sort of in some sense, always uh, the nature of, of what the news is, um, you know, bad news sort of sells. I think the difference, though, is that the, traditionally that's been about sensation, right? About um, trying to sell something um, shocking or horrific um, and that sort of piques human curiosity in a way. This is different, I think, because it's about virtuousness you there's a there's a hunger to to believe and invest in the bad news not just as an entertainment um but as a as a sort of worldview can i just this just thing just came across my transom gave me a spontaneous migraine i want to bring it to the um to the table because it it relates to i think what you're talking about and also back to the omicron stuff so i talked about scott gottlieb right who identified last night the study, uh, or rather the case rates in this province in South Africa, where we have some really detailed data, which suggests to him that the epidemic, uh, we caught the tail end of it because it's collapsing now, which means all these infections were subclinical, um, <clears throat> and which suggests it's very, very mild. And he went on CNBC this morning to say, uh, look, it went up very fast, it went down very fast, we're missing something about the epidemiology of, of this disease. And the something he talked about last night was its lack of severity, which is why it just it was under the radar for so long that we basically missed the wave in South Africa, only caught the tail end of it. In the same interview, he says, quote, you're going to see the next in the, these things close down over the next five days, by which he means retails, outlets, restaurants, stores, schools. I think people are going to make decisions to close things early heading into the holidays, because right now I'd be taking extra steps to be cautious. Guy, you just said the thing was not severe. You just said, what, what am I missing? You just said that this thing isn't going to have the effect that it would have had if it was a more severe variant, especially for people who are vaccinated, fully boosted or otherwise. But it's like- What are we doing? 
but he's the, the public health apparatus is now acting as a therapist rather than as a public health organization, right? Public health advocates should be talking about the, the scientific reality, the, the public health implications, but they're literally, you know, have got us on the couch holding our hands going, it's okay, we'll close everything down. Don't get upset. Don't get upset. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. The political class isn't responding like, like they did in 2020 and they shouldn't because right. it's not 2020 anymore. And to close the country down a week before Christmas would be politically suicidal. Put a gun so, in your mouth. But this is you're where better I'm, off doing that. One, one other thing, though, this is where I think we've had this discussion since the since the first lockdowns happened and we went daily about this. And this, I think, unfortunately, and not to sound too pessimistic, it's the worldview and the habit of the habits of mind that have been uh created in a lot of Americans in terms of dealing with this pandemic, this is the battle that's going on now, right? Because you're right about the political class. And I'm, you know, as a parent, I'm like, they better not shut down my school. And yet there are parents pulling their kids out of school. They're just doing it. They're like, they're fearful on behalf of their kids who are fully vaccinated at very low risk and are exhibiting no symptoms. They'll pull them out over one case. So the, the, the habit of mind to panic is still unfortunately very deeply rooted in too many Americans. And that's the lack of leadership of the political class, particularly the Biden administration, they should be speaking to that fear and saying, you know, perfectly politely, that's crazy. Like you're, you're acting like a crazy person. This is irrational. Here's how things have changed, but they won't do it. Bloomberg this morning, uh, 308 AM tweet. South Africa's COVID-19 hospitalization rates plunge 91% in the latest week of Omicron infections when compared with the last wave of the virus. Now, that's Bloomberg, which you have to pay for. I mean, the tweet is free, but if you click on it, you sort of have to pay to read the article. Why, why isn't that the lead story on the New York Times site? Omicron plunges, you know, in the place where Omicron was actually sequenced and, and, and demonstrated in, in Gauteng and others, 91% drop. I mean, it, it, we are we are we are being misinformed emotionally, and I don't think you can blame people for their response to the misinformation because they're not us, and this is what we do for a living, and we want to come and talk to you about this every day, and we pay like a ridiculous amount of attention to it. And yeah, if 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 the look the network newscasts have what you know. Uh, 12, 13, 14 million viewers every night. Is that the lead story? Was that the lead story last night? I doubt it will be the lead story tonight. I, I, I very seriously doubt it. I want to mention a movie that's just about to come out, uh, Don't Look Up by Adam McKay, uh, who, you know, made Anchorman and Step Brothers. And then he made The Big Short and then he made Vice, the hit job on Dick Cheney. And, uh, you know, he's swinging for the fences. He keeps getting Academy Award nominations. So this is a big swing for the fences. Don't look up. It's got uh, the two biggest stars in the world in it. Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, Netflix paid, I don't know, $200 million for it. Meryl Streep plays the president. It's got like one of these crazy casts. And it's a movie about an asteroid that is going to hit Earth. Uh, and uh, DiCaprio and Lawrence are are either they're like a journalist and a, and a and a and a scientist who have figured this out, and it's a hundred percent chance. And they go to the president, everybody, to say this is happening, and everybody makes fun of them, or you know, says, "Well, why do we have to do anything now?" And, da, 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 da. and this is apparently a uh, 
you know, it's a, it's an allegory, but it's like a self-conscious allegory. It's not the asteroid, it's climate change. And apparently reading interviews with Adam McKay and a guy named David Sirota, who people may remember as Bernie Sanders's Twitter media guy before he was too crazy even for Bernie Sanders and had to go somewhere else. So uh, he and Adam McKay came up with the story. So, you know, this is a, I'm trying to think of sort of the, it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene making, making a movie with, um, you know, who, uh, you know, I don't know, with the, the guy made drag with Mel Gibson, something like that. Okay. So, um, so they're discussing, and apparently the real target of the movie is the mainstream media, because according to them, the problem with the mainstream media is it doesn't focus on the threat of climate change enough. And the real indictment here is that the mainstream media is bad at making sure that everybody is panicked about climate change and they deserve, it's not us. It's not corporations or conservatives or anything like that. We're, we're beyond reason. This is a yawp of rage, satirical rage at the media for not writing enough about the threat of climate change. I bring this up only to say that that's the world view that Abe is kind of evoking. That means that um, anybody who doesn't want to live in a state of utter paralysis uh, and, and a conviction that everything is going wrong everywhere at all times that there's no reason to look for. There's no reason to consider the opportunities that the future holds. Space exploration, as you say, Abe, or whatever. Because we're all going to die in about 12 years. And it's all the fault, not of Sean Hannity. It's the fault of the head of the, the Salzberger family. Because they're not screaming from the rooftops loud enough. Um, so I think, I think we're going to win is what I'm saying somehow. Right. I mean, go ahead, Abe. Well, no, I was just going to say regarding, you know, climate concerns generally, like that is a climate panic is a huge backdrop to all of this. Um, that we have been hearing about the coming apocalypse for, you know, 20 years now. Um, to the point where it's traumatizing kids. Um, and yeah, oh, that, that has 30 years. James Hansen's announcement that we were warming up was 1987. The, uh, the NASA scientist who sort of gave birth to the global warming panic. That was 1987. So that's 35 years now. Yeah. So I think, so it, it sort of, you know, shaped, shaped us into a, an apocalyptic state of mind. And, there have been a, a, a string of articles now I've seen the past two days. Um, there was one at the Atlantic yesterday, and I forgot who wrote it, but um, he was saying, you know, I have to ask the, 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 the question no one's asked, what if COVID never goes away? What are, what are we going to do? Now, this was based on, you know, based on everything, but based on Omicron in, in particular, because that's, that's spreading. Of course, that's a ridiculous reading of the Omicron situation, but he was sort of saying, well, I think we're, I think we're at the apocalypse essentially, you know, because, because we're, we're, we're now entering this, this endless COVID period. 
and uh, well, that's terrible. The world is the world is over, and I'm not sure how to handle that emotionally. Uh, then there's a piece at Vox today um, saying, "Why, with the world coming to an end as we know it, do we have to keep going to work? Because of course, employment is terrible. Another bad thing, because the American work and productivity culture is awful. Um, these are these are poorly disguised wishes for the apocalypse." Um, right. That's a very real psychological well, there's, thing. There's an even <clears throat> closer coupling, I think, of the climate change ideology, psychological disposition, rather, and the the COVID thing. So, if you really do believe that you know uh, climate change is is going to kill the planet off in what ten years now, because it was twelve years in, in like two years ago, um, then you know you, you're very energized about it. But the drivers of of CO2 emissions are countries like China and India. There's nothing we can do about them, really. We can talk shop them to death, but they're going to pursue economic development, whatever we do. If we were to stop using fossil fuels today, across the board in the United States, it wouldn't make a dent in the drivers of climate change, according to what these people talk about. So what do you do? You browbeat the people who are listening to you because they're not listening to you. So you go after the New York Times because they're the only people who are still listening to you. Right. Just the same thing here with COVID. You can't reach the unvaccinated population. So what do you do? You mask up everybody in New York City. You lock them down in Los Angeles. You make restaurants close in Austin, Texas because everybody else isn't listening to you. So you have to impose this on somebody well, I think ultimately, when I said I think we're going to win, I'm talking about like multi generationally, but I mean, it, it is like it is like the birth dearth. I mean, sort of think about the problem of a, of a civilization that has lost its faith in the future. One of the signs of it is is that the people in it stop having 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 babies. So you have, you know, Italy has this insanely low birth rate like 1.1 you know which means that basically the country will be depopulated in 50 years unless something changes ours is declining and all of that but it, but ours is not declining everywhere and it isn't declining it's regional and and, and class-based and all that and um and so you know demographically it's like fine you want to walk around saying that the world is coming to an end which it isn't Let's see, in 2060 or 2070, Trump voters are going to be 80% of the population of the United States or their descendants or whoever it is. Like, you want to save the world? Go have lots of children who believe what you believe. And then you have to put them out in the, you know, in the, you know, in the bulrushes, uh, in the bat, in the Moses basket to send them down river so that they can save the planet for you. If you walk around saying there's no point, this is all terrible. We're eating up too much of the world's resources. Everything is horrible. Good. So you'll die out and then the planet will be left to the people who don't have this demented, suicidal, you know, uh, anti-historical uh, millenarian apocalyptic fantasy that the world is 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 coming to an end. But they they make that explicit. They actually many climate activists say it's irresponsible to have more than I think I think they've said it at two children. Like you can have two, but more than that, you're being irresponsible. And I do think that the that 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 tension you described, John, is is at work in a lot of our culture right now among the technocratic elite, the progressive elite for sure, but the sort of coastal, highly educated elite in this country who run all the institutions and right now are as representing the Democratic Party running the country. They really do feel not exactly contempt 
or pity, but they, they don't understand the vast majority of the American population. And hence their, their very scolding tone about vaccination rates and whatnot. And the average American, can we just repeat this, is like what, a guy in his 50s who's never been to college. That's the average American voter. So they don't know those people and they don't understand those people. And they are kind of baffled when they go to the ballot box in a, in a state like Virginia and utterly reject the technocratic elite's wisdom. They have to have a rationale that isn't that, that can't focus on themselves and can't focus on their own mistakes and, and particularly their mistakes in governance in this case. And I agree. I think long term, they're going to have to confront their own sort of uh, elite uh, uh, priors, as we call them, but they're, they're elite misguided uh, principles because they're going to just be too many kids. And, and to go back to that Pew poll I cited earlier, uh, young people 18 to 29 who identify as Republican are very proud of their country. So you have a generation who is leaning conservative, who's, who's quite patriotic. They kind of mirror that Reagan generation of conservatives. Um, they're going to be battling it out. And I, I, I agree. The message that, that the right has right now is very muddled, uh, in some cases with the extreme Trumpists, quite dangerous in terms of how they talk about our democracy, but that hopefully will fade out. And, um, we're going to decide that uh, in two years at the ballot box if Trump runs. But I'm heartened long term by that if generation. You, if, you, if you like what we're saying here, I don't mean to interrupt you. That's the commentary podcast joke. Is it, uh, Christ, <laughs> I, I, I interrupt Christine to go to the ad. So uh, so I just I did it. <laughs> Give there, you my you, blessing. <laughs> thank you. If you like what we're saying, here, if you like the philosophical uh, direction in which uh, in which we've this conversation has gone, you should get yourself a copy of David Bonson's there's no free lunch. 250 economic truths. His new book that is a perfect Christmas gift. You're, you know, where are we? We're like uh, eight days before Christmas. Go to Barnes and Noble, buy it hard. You know, send it as a gift through Amazon, uh, through the Kindle. Have, buy it on the Kindle. Buy it on Amazon and have it shipped to your home. Uh, this is a book that connects human flourishing principles of liberty and. Uh, hard-won economic truths and uh, iron economic laws in 250 easily to easy to digest daily devotional studies of great ideas, great thinkers, and great principles. So that's David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. David's our friend. He runs the Bonson Group, uh, which publishes the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, two newsletters that uh, I find invaluable in keeping me abreast of what's going on in the worldwide markets and in worldwide macroeconomics. And, uh, and, and so uh, this is uh, one of the many fruits of his labors. There's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, uh, to be available at wherever fine bookstores, fine books, bleh, fine booksellers are, uh, and it, like the Bonson Group, is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. And you know, uh, if you're also considering a present for yourself, and you're like one of these climate change people who can't, uh, you know, who can't get comfortable because the world's coming to an end, you should buy yourself an X chair. Go buy yourself an X chair. You know what? Maybe you'll 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 feel better. You'll feel different. You'll come to feel differently when you use that patented LMX technology that can warm you up or cool you down, give you a massage. It's the best looking piece of furniture that you'll own. It's the most comfortable office chair you'll ever see, and uh, we can't recommend it highly enough. So go to xchaircommentary.com for a hundred dollars off. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. 
$400 off on your X chair with a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort or your money back xchaircommentary.com. Um, okay. See, we always go in these transitions and then I lose the thread and I don't know what, what, what else to, what else to talk about. So, and I said to you guys yesterday, you needed some stuff in your back pocket to well, help me. I, I, I was getting Noah all riled up by telling him to read this Atlantic article uh, right before we, we taped about um, the masking study that the CDC's Rochelle Walensky has, has been touting, you know, about uh, for quite a while, very alarmist saying, if you don't have mask mandates, there's like, I think three times likelier spreads of infection. And, and um, so uh, an Atlantic writer basically debunked her use of that study showing how uh, questionable its conclusions were, how it really wasn't the kind of study you went the head of the CDC uh, promoting because of its its uh, flaws. Um, and it, it's another example of, uh, and by the way, the masking wars at schools are ongoing. This has not been settled. A lot of parents, especially for younger children, it's become um, uh, sort of a, st a stand your ground moment for parents because the, the we are outliers in the world for, for the Draconian masking policy. Christine, I don't mean to interrupt you. Just a digression. We are outliers <laughs> in the country. That's true. I'm shocked. I mean, I'm a, I seek this stuff out. And I was shocked to find out that most of the country isn't living like we're living. Right. Most of the country is unmasked in schools, to say nothing of everywhere right. else. Mm hmm. No, that's true. I have I have uh, young family members in Florida with young children, and, and they laugh whenever I send them articles like this. They're like, why do you live there? <laughs> but but the but again, like to the point of what the elite uh, technocrats are telling us we should be doing and scolding us about not doing. This was, a, I think, an example of why mass skeptics uh, say last summer uh, post vaccination mass skeptics were treated as pariahs by the media. These were just terrible idiot Trumpists who who couldn't be bothered to do this simple thing to protect everyone else. And as these studies show that the evidence is just not as strong as they claimed it was at the time. Uh, I, I, this is great, good journalism, and I, it was a really important piece, and it talked about how these public health experts were basically violating every ethical standard that their industry should uh, adhere to when they, you know, moved forward with this study, despite its glaring um, evidentiary problems. Uh, and it's great that it's appeared in The Atlantic. I guarantee you the Atlantic readership, which needs to hear it most, won't or care about it or dismiss it or probably just not read it at all. Because a selection of some of the most, we talked about this yesterday briefly, but some of the most popular articles that this audience, has, that's, this publication has cultivated this kind of audience over the course of the last two years are all apocalypse porn. Some headlines. One, don't be surprised when you get Omicron. America's not ready for Omicron. The pan, pan, pandemic of the vaccinated is here. I'm starting to give up on post-pandemic life. The vaccine scientists are spreading vaccine misinformation. That was yesterday. Top five pieces. We need okay, a soothing so, song sung by John right now. <laughs> so the um, uh, the news yesterday, in the Wall Street Journal was that the Washington Post, which like the New York Times and all these other places, has had, had this wild surge in circulation and success online and in print and in advertising and all of that from 2017 to 2020 um, uh, has crashed. Uh, there's been a, a huge crash. Uh, reversals in uh, circulation, churn, uh, subscription circulation, advertising revenue down, clicks down, all of that. Um, because, of course, Trump was their apocalypse porn. And even though 
so which gives you some sense of why there is actually an incentive, a financial, whatever you want to call it, a readership incentive to continue with the Trump's still there, Trump's there, Trump's a monster on the horizon, he's going to eat, you know, he's going to eat Los Angeles, he's, here he comes, he's Godzilla, is coming back out of the water to stomp on Tokyo. Um, because without it, they got nothing. And the, for the Atlantic, uh, uh, the uh, COVID is their Trump. I mean, they, they have Trump too. They have Barton Gelman saying, oh my God, it's, yo, and you know, Anne Applebaum is like cowering in her castle in Poland, hiding in the basement with her, you know, can, you know, with her, you know, with her, uh, whatever, you know, shashlik or whatever the hell it is they eat in Poland. I can't even remember with her, with her foreign minister husband. And they're all in David from is screaming and they're all screaming. And then all that about Trump, but I mean, Omicron uh, COVID is their COVID is their Trump. And they are riding this until that horse is dead. And at the glue factory, and it may be close to being dead in the glue factory. And, you know, of course, it's at the end when you're really riding it. That's when you ride it twice as hard because you, you can feel you can feel the end coming. Maybe um, we should mention this. Uh, the fact uh, Christine brought this up uh, a little earlier, not not here, but before about uh, Harvard's big announcement. Um which, uh, which again, I think is another form of hastening, hastening the apocalypse for the, uh, for this class, for for not for the elite class that we're part of, but nonetheless, and even participate in the elite actions of, but nonetheless, uh, stand enough outside to see where its uh, self destruction might be, might be heading. Uh, Christine, what is happening at Harvard? Well, they've just announced that that for I think it's for the next is it four years uh, for the next several years they're not going to re- require re- applicants are no longer required to submit standardized test scores so they don't need to submit an SAT or an ACT um, and this has been you know they Harvard's patting itself on the back saying this is going to increase our equity uh, uh, approach we're going to get because as we know standardized tests just punish you know. The kids who do poorly on them. It's it's clearly racist. There's this has been brewing for some time and there have been schools. I mean, University of Chicago, I think, also dropped its SAT requirement for a while. A lot of schools dropped it during COVID. But what we're seeing both at the higher education level and at the competitive admissions only high school, public high school level, is that they're trying to make it permanent. It's kind of like what they did with the voting stuff. I here in DC, our, our admissions only public high school has just announced with no discussion that they're all they're not going to have the admissions test anymore for next year either. And there's no COVID rate based reason for it. So they're using COVID and its extreme circumstances to justify a push to get rid of standardized measurements, which many of them always wanted for ideological reasons. I actually looked at this and thought, okay, so this is how Harvard, as as many of our listeners know, has been the subject of a lawsuit filed by Asian American applicants who felt that they were being discriminated against. Um, And uh, this is how they're going to try to kill that. Because basically, Asian American applicants to Harvard wildly outscore all other ethnic groups. They just do. It's it's very clear when when that data emerged during the course of the the legal uh, trial about this, it, it was just stark. So instead of dealing with with uh, their own uh, lack of ability to get more students who are who are not Asian or not white to do better on these tests, and there there are methods for doing this. People have studied how to how to do this. They're just going to get rid of the test entirely. It's one of these the quick fixes of the progressive elite to a to a much more uh, to a broader, more complicated social problem. 
But for Harvard in particular, it means they can look to essays and teacher recommendations. Inflated grades will now be the way that they measure this. Interviews, all of these sort of soft techniques that don't have um, where you can't draw a hard line in the sand and say this student is better than that student. And what that, but what they haven't gotten rid of, and this is what's important legacy preferences, athletic preferences, the preference to, to allow the children of vast and extreme wealth to buy their way into these institutions, all those privileges remain. The privileges that protect the largely white progressive elite in this country are not being challenged at all. They just wanna make sure they get rid of those Asian students so they can have enough affirmative action uh, students coming in without these you know, horrible lawsuits that, that reveal that they're doing something that, that by the standards of a colorblind constitution are clearly illegal. And it's it's despicably racist, not only uh, toward Asian toward Asians in the in the in the thinking that you describe, but also, of course, uh, toward African Americans who they're who they're hoping to get more of. Especially considering that um, uh, ethnic minorities students in America have been closing the those standardized score gaps steadily, yes. especially once yes. once you control for socioeconomic class. So rather than actually see the, the full fruition of an objective sort of equality uh, a standard of, of, of measuring, you know, um, um, uh, which applicants are, are, are eligible, they're going to they're gonna shut this down before that equality can even be realized. I think in the end, what we're, what we're talking about here is a reversion to the early 20th century, mid 20th century way that these schools chose their student populations in a much different world in which most most people didn't go to college and, and college was a radically minority thing to do there weren't as many there were a scant number of colleges and universities in the united states compared to what there are now and what they said they were doing was building a population on their campus that reflected their values and they needed people who were part of the Harvard, who could work and facilitate and work in the Harvard tradition. That language is still very much present in every admissions document. My daughter just went through the high school admission, the college admissions process. So I can tell you, I read dozens and dozens and dozens of these things. This, uh, the penumbras and emanations of what it means to be a Harvard person or an Oberlin person or a Texas A&M person or whatever kind of person you're talking about. And what that means is we want to pick people that for some reason on the application, as we're sitting in our admissions office, we like the look of, we like the cut of their jib. We like the way their personal statement said that they worked in a homeless shelter or that they were dealing with depression or that they, they're you know, what they had to do because their mother had cancer or something like that. That's the kind of person we want, compassionate, but rounded, but, but someone who could really contribute to our society, but someone who's also feeling, and all of that is bullshit, right? Because it's all basically what they want is for there to be no standards whatsoever so they can pick the standards so that they can assemble the class that they want. Now they can do that anyway. Um, but uh, over the last seven years, there grew up a basic fealty to this idea that these schools should be the best and that you should have the best of the best. You should compete for the best students and all of that. Um, and what that led to inexorably was the fact that certain types of striving populations who work their asses off from K through 12 
and learn how to take tests and learn how to do what you have to do and work hard and get really good grades because their parents are standing there till two o'clock in the morning, making them do their homework and all of that, uh, that those people, that's the gaming of the system. Like the gaming of the system is that they do what they're supposed to do to achieve academically, to move on academically, since that's what college is. It's an academy. It's an intellectual philosophical academy. And these schools don't like the results of it. They didn't like it when it was Jews and it was all going to be Jews. If there hadn't been quotas in the 30s, 40s and 50s, 40 to 50 percent of the applicants to Columbia, Princeton, Harvard and Yale would have, been, you know, who would have been admitted based on some kind of independent standard would have been Jews. And now it's Asians and well, it's and Asians. Yeah. Sorry. And that's actually why it's clearly a, it's a proxy for both race and class now. Uh, the, the oh, we want to find the students that, that our student body needs, because what they what they cite for that is not is not just the fact that only wealthy kids. Look, I know this. I had to work every summer when I was in college because I had to put myself through college. I couldn't I didn't get to do unpaid internships at fancy places because I couldn't afford to live. That's the case for a lot of American kids who want to go to college. They don't have the 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 wealth and the connections of their parents to rely on to spend a summer, you know, building, you know, a, a cancer ward in Guatemala. I don't know whatever these kids do these days that look so amazing on their resumes when they apply to college. That's that's just not a reality. And that's also not a reality for these for many of these Asian American students who are first generation Americans whose parents are working minimum wage jobs, often several of them, in order to uh, afford the test prep and all the stuff that they they know they need to do or thought they needed to do to, to go into this. But this becomes a proxy for progressive elite class distinctions too. And it doesn't just affect Asian Americans, it affects anyone who isn't from that class, who can't afford those those symbols that are seen by the admissions officers as a proxy for, oh, you're gonna be a good Harvard student. No, it's you, you come from a certain uh, background of economic uh, and social class that that is the kind of person we like. And they use the same right. sort of soft techniques to reject. Right. Well, and so what are they what have they said about Asians? What do they say about Asians? What is that internal? What do those internal documents say about them? They're not well-rounded. We need well-rounded students. You know why they're not well-rounded? Because all they do is school. You're a school. You're a school. You're not a, you're not a, you're not a debate. You're not like a, uh, you're not the cosmos club. You know, you're not a, you know, I don't know, you know, you're not, you're not a, you're not a, a mixer. You're a school. So the people in America who spend their lives for, you know, 15 years doing nothing but trying to master school are deemed insufficiently non-school-like to be at your school. And these schools, if they really embrace this and they really, really go with it, are going to crumble and fail of their own, again, couple generations down the road. But it'll be an embarrassment to go to Harvard. I mean, at some point, it'll be an embarrassment to go to Harvard. Uh, you know, what happened in the country to change all this around? Uh, really, in the late 50s, Soviet Union set up Sputnik. Right. That was the panic. The panic was we may be falling behind technologically and and, you know, in terms of basically our existential survival. And you know why? It's because the gentleman C at Choate counted more than getting an A at Bronx Science. We did this wrong. Let's change this up. And we are back to it's not the gentleman's C, but it is the yes, my father has enough money so I could go work, you know, do a Habitats for Humanity thing rather than my dad runs a dry cleaner and I 
I go to Chinese school from four to seven after school to maintain my fluency and knowledge of my the culture from which I come. And then from eight to two in the morning, I'm doing my homework. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, I'm doing test prep. And what I'm going to go to, you know, the State University of New York at Binghamton. And in 30 years, that's going to be the greatest research university on the planet Earth. Well, and those kids, when they grow up and succeed, should give their money as alumni to the yes. schools that did take them. And that's another look. Harvard and the, the, the Ivy League is basically a, a large hedge fund right now. So maybe that's what their future is, to just yeah. function as a hedge fund and an elite. You know, it's like those elite finishing schools that women used yeah. to be sent to. <laughs> yeah. And look, this is no joke. The Sputnik p- parallel is also pretty exact. I mean, we are in the we are in the grips of a of a, you know, of, a, of an elite terror that um, we are being lapped by China on on hypersonics, for example, like the idea that what this country should be focused on is getting young people into STEM, not so that it should all be equalized for the purposes of, you know, making sure that everything is, you know, is gender, gender equalitarian in STEM. Uh, but because we don't want the Chinese to be the dominant economic and scientific force on this planet in 60 years. And we gotta, we gotta do something about it now. And that, again, this is where focusing on the negative as opposed to the possibilities of the future and what we need to kind of, you know, get the country online with, uh, as opposed to this apocalyptic resignation to despair, decay, gloom, and and kind of a stasis leading to death. Um, I just think that to the extent that that happens, we're seeing, going to see an inexorable process uh, of the a degeneration of this cultural elite, which has actually seemed to have gotten stronger in some ways over the last twenty five years. Although, of course, there there was Trump. To that we had the biggest technocratic elitist who ever was president in some ways in Obama, and look look where he led to anyway with that have a fantastic weekend go see spider-man uh no way home it's it's uh, kind of amazing if you're into that sort of thing it's like kind of head spinningly good uh and for uh, christine noah and abe i'm john pothoritz keep the candle burning